Whether you're taking a rip down the lease road in your jacked-up truck or flying first class to Houston, Texas, it's time to sit back and relax for another exciting episode of Oil & Gas Onshore. This episode is brought to you by Tendeka, a global specialist in advanced completions and production solutions for the oil and gas industry. And now, ladies and gentlemen, please welcome your host, Justin Gauthier. All right. Welcome to another episode. We are here at Surtex office in beautiful Golden, Colorado with Elio Dean, Chief Executive Officer at Surtech and Professor at Colorado School of Mines. Elio, how are you doing this afternoon? Great. Thanks yeah. for having me. Yeah, good. No, you're welcome. Thank you for having me in the hospitality. The gentleman who greeted me at the door there was just open arms. Like, Do you need this? Do you need that? Do you need internet? So uh, yeah, it kind of talks a little bit about the culture here, I would imagine. Yeah, it's a pretty nice, relaxed city. Yeah, no, it is. And thanks for meeting me. You know, we're getting into the evening hours here, but as CEO, I'd imagine you work countless hours keeping the train on the track. So this is probably not unusual for you to be here at the office still. That's part of the life, right? Yeah, yeah, exactly. Good deal. Well, before we get going, I just want to mention OGGN's travel sponsor, BCD Travel. BCD provides solutions for every business travel program. Visit bcdtravel.com for more details. And if you'd like to support the show, please subscribe and do me a huge favor to take a few minutes and leave a review on whatever platform you're listening to. Any feedback is welcome and appreciated, good or bad. Also, if you feel like you have a great story, idea for a show, or if you simply have any questions, please hit me up on LinkedIn. So Elio, I want to get started, just tell, get you to tell the listeners your story, your journey within oil and gas, you know, how you got teaching and, and just kind of give the listeners an idea of who we're talking to. Yeah. So I guess I'm one of the old school, the young old school guys of the oil and gas I was industry. Saying, you can't be too old school, man. I'm you, not too old. <laughs> I'm 38 years old. I'm not ashamed of my age. Hey, good for you, man. You're crushing it. That's awesome. <laughs> not yet. We'll see how okay. it goes from here on out. <laughs> Define right? crushing it, yeah, I guess, we'll, right? We'll yeah. knock on wood. <laughs> but I come from an oil and gas family. So okay. my brother, as well as my father, they're both in the oil and gas industry. My dad's a geologist, geophysicist, and my brother's also an engineer. Okay. So Are they here in Golden or Colorado? Uh, actually, or? my brother James works with me. So oh, we're good. both. So he's a COO at Surtech. Okay. And he and I, we both worked at Exxon together ah. and we've got a few investments together. So we've kind of had a journey together, Okay, you know, but with kind of with a role model of our father who's been in the oil and gas industry for a few decades now. Nice. And just that to me was the old school oil and gas industry. It was a family business. It was. Before you get going, what is it like running a business with a brother? What are some of the challenges or what are some of the glories behind that? Because I would imagine it can get, you know, you grow up with a guy, you know, you guys have probably had your battles, you go into business together. I mean, what's that like? Yeah. So the funny thing is, you know, he and I, we got a weird story together because, you know, he's three years older than I am. Okay. And we've always gone along. So we've always been friends. And we always both knew to some extent that we'd be in the oil and gas industry, right? So I guess myself, not him, I wasn't smart enough to do anything else. And so I tried different majors. <laughs> Me I, and you I, both. <laughs> I transferred from one university to Colorado School of Mines and everything just kind of fell into place. And I was like, okay, this is for me. But then when I was working at Exxon, I went to Exxon that same year he went to Exxon. And we've been kind of following each other in everything that we do. And so cool. he's had some other oil ventures that he's been part of that I haven't been part of. But with some of these CertTech opportunities, it opened up. And what's nice about working with your brother is there's two types of brothers. There's brothers that you probably don't want to work with. <laughs> yeah. Or there's like a charity case of a brother. And then there's sure. a brother who... You've known him your whole life and you know his strengths mm. and you also know he's smarter than you. And so in that sense, I think we feed off each other's strengths and weaknesses. We know each other. We're completely different. Right. He's the type of guy you'd find on uh, Barnes and Noble reading the books, just kind of, you know, or not now, but, but he's, he's an avid reader. Sure. 
I am the total opposite. Okay. I'm not a big reader. or I read a lot, but I don't like fiction. He reads every book you could ever imagine. He's phenomenal at writing. Yeah. Where I'm horrible at writing. Once again, why I, that petroleum engineering kind of fit for me because most of us don't know how to write reports. <laughs> but at the end of the day, we kind of complement each other. Yeah. And he's more on the operations. He really understands project management. That's what he was doing at Exxon with the regulatory work. Wow. Whereas my responsibilities at Exxon and here have been more focused on the subsurface. Gotcha. And so he's been kind of a form of a clone. And when there's not enough hours in the days, if you could clone yourself... That's the closest I've been able to come to that. And he handles certain aspects and I handle the others. We understand each other. We trust each other. And I would say he's got the resume to get a job anywhere. So that's kind of a unique situation to be in is to have someone like that. Yeah, most definitely. And then like you said, you complement each other. And that's what it takes to build a solid team and a solid business is, is you know, identifying people that can complement you and pick up where you're weak and, and vice versa. So to be able to identify that is certainly cool and, and to have your brother there and, and someone that you can rely on. I would imagine just that, you know, having someone that's dependent, you trust each other. I'm sure your parents were uh, super proud to have their kids, you know, run a company like this and work together. I think that's probably pretty cool. I think yeah, I <laughs> as a parent myself, I think that would be neat if my kids all of a sudden went to business together and did well. It'd be a neat story to tell. For it's sure. definitely, you hear these stories of like, like for example, in a previous life, I worked for Williams. Okay. And Williams, it was the Williams brothers. And you learn all these different, like throughout history or just general companies, there's oftentimes brothers that work together. Mm-hmm. And to me, that's just kind of a blessing. It's an opportunity that I think few people really good to have. Yeah. And to have someone that you've known your whole life, you know, you got inside jokes left and right. Yeah. And we just trust each other and we know each other. So yeah, definitely count my blessings on that one. Yeah. No, it's always interesting to hear that or you hear about husbands and wives that work together, the same company. One of my customers, you know, one's a drilling engineer, one's a completions engineer. And she actually just ended up leaving, going to another company, but they had worked together at this same operator for years. And I just, I was like, you guys carpool together. You probably eat lunch together. Like they do everything together. And so it was neat because it it actually didn't bother them at all. Like they went to the same functions together and it was just like, okay. And then funny enough, I've got a customer here in Golden actually. And one of the gentlemen left a former company to come here and him and his wife worked together at the other company. And then they came and worked the same company here. And so, yeah, sometimes it just works. So it's neat to see. Yeah. And once again, this is a knock on wood situation, right? (laughs) So far, so good. And the truth is we recognize the risks. For sure. And so, you know, we have pretty open communication, we understand and, and we trust each other. So I don't think there's any real concerns, but we also are aware of the realities that, you know, doing business with family sometimes is ruined family or ruined business or both. Most definitely. Yeah. You do hear some horror stories, but hopefully, like I said, knock on wood, but enough about that. I just found it interesting (laughs) because sometimes the chemistry and, and just the, you know, the stuff that surrounds that is always good conversation. But so anyway, you know, you graduate, you work Exxon, you work Williams. And then what happens after that? Did you come here? Yeah. So I did school of mines. I transferred in. So I only did petroleum engineering classes. And my father being in the oil and gas industry, he had contacts. He'd worked in the Denver area in the nineties. And one of his really good friends was running part of Williams, the exploration group. Mm-hmm. And so they were able to give me a pretty good internship. Cool. And so I got the internship opportunity. Then afterwards, I kind of mentioned who my father was. And, you know, my, my father said, hey, you got to work this, for this guy. He's one of the greatest guys on earth, wow. which, which was completely true. This guy's name was Steve Natale okay. and just a phenomenal individual. One of the first bosses that I really had that I always look up to. Everyone who worked for him, just respect. And so a great person to learn from. Mm-hmm. I did that while I was finishing up School of Mines because I, you know, I only had petroleum engineering classes. Then once I finished Mines from, with my bachelor's degree, that's where the opportunity with Exxon opened up. 
Gotcha. So you mentioned the mentor, and and this is something for the young listeners out there. It's extremely important. But working for someone like that, what was the biggest takeaway? And and looking back at it, do you think you took enough skill, or you really owned it enough and paid attention enough to it? Or you know, what can you tell young listeners that are potentially working for someone like that that can help their career? Because those are pivotal moments. And I have a gentleman that I can think of that you know when I worked with, it changed my perspective and it gave me sort of a clearer picture sometimes on the direction that I had. But can you speak on that a little bit? Yeah. So I guess the way I'd throw it out there is I've come across two types of old guys, right? Let's let's just offend people since yeah, yeah. we're just throwing it out <laughs> we're there. We're in the right? old field, man. It happens <laughs> every day. There's plenty of old guys. We're missing people. We had 20 from, was it 86 to 2002, no one got hired. So we have a 20-year <laughs> gap for the most part. For sure. In the oil and gas industry. So we have, I consider myself the older of the young guys. Mm-hmm. But when I started... You know, I was dealing with mainly old people. Yeah. And say that maybe more experienced people, but there's two types of old guys that I've come across. There's the old guys who are down to earth, humble, who are just sharing knowledge left and right. Mm-hmm. They want to see the success of the company. They want to see the success of individuals and their team. Right. And that's where I'd put Steve. He was one of those individuals who he just wanted to help the company, help the team, help individuals by being honest, by being technical. You know, he didn't take poorly done work, Yeah, but he had high expectations, but he gave you all the tools you needed to succeed. Cool. And he would actually take the time to sit with you and say, Hey, I recognize you really don't have a clue what you're doing. Yeah. But let's just try to make sure we understand what we're on the same page. So the fact that he took time to sit with me definitely changed my, my perspective of the whole mentor relationship. Cause I've been fortunate to have at Exxon and then at Surtech individuals like that who have been nothing more than supportive. Mm-hmm. They have seen me as perhaps a younger version of themselves Cool. where they've said, you know what, I'm going to hand this off to you and I'm sure you're going to swim. Yeah. Now, the other type of old guys that I've come across, which are a little bit more on the frustrating side, are those who don't accept their age or the fact that they might not have another 40 years in the industry. And so it turns into a competition. Mm. And a lot of those guys kind of hold stuff to themselves. They try to make everything a competition and try to expose the young guys for being weak or stupid or something else. And yeah, I've been fortunate to primarily work with those who are interested in building me up. Mm. And that my hat will always go off to those individuals. Most definitely. And I've also seen people who have tried to make it a competition, right? And to say, yep. hey, here's a young guy. Let me see if I can embarrass him. Usually those guys, I haven't found them to be too technical. And oftentimes the reputation precedes them. Yeah. And I've been lucky to avoid that. But I've had friends who've worked for those type of individuals and they've walked away from the oil industry. They said, I can't do this. You know, it's not worth it. Yeah. Well, that's really neat. And so hopefully you can take that and, you know, provide it to someone, you know, whether it's at Surtech or someone that that's looking up to someone like yourself, I'm sure you're, you know, probably willing to share your knowledge. And eventually, like you said, have to hand it off to someone at some point. So yeah, it's great to have that mindset and and certainly applaud you for that because it sucks working for people that have just a scarcity mindset. And they're just so concerned about, you know, someone taking their job. And yeah, sometimes you just have to dissolve the ego and realize that, you know, everyone's trying to do the right thing. And, and if you can pass on knowledge and share that with people, they might exceed you one day. But at the end of the day, it's just, it's about growth, right? So, yeah, no, exactly. Cool. You know, talking about Surtech, would you describe, so Surtech revolves a lot around EOR, is that correct? Yeah. So we're an EOR consulting firm and an EOR laboratory. Cool. So, okay. So we focus on pretty much everything enhanced oil recovery, but what we don't do is we don't manufacture chemical agents or injectants. Okay. We don't sell products in the sense of like facilities or equipment. What we sell is recommendations on how to implement it and primarily work with the operators 
okay. in order to help them or educate them so that they don't get taken advantage of by someone who's providing a bulk product. Gotcha. So is this something that early on in your career you worked around that you, that you were interested in? So how did you transition working for a major then coming into Surtec? Yeah. So originally I wanted in a previous or you know back when I was in college, you know, I wanted to follow my father's footsteps, right? And I was mm-hmm. like, I'm going to be a geologist. And yeah. My dad, the geologist is like, don't do that. <laughs> don't follow my footsteps. Like, be better than me. Well, not necessarily that. He <laughs> said his time was the time of the geologist. Gotcha. He said in the 70s, that was the time when everyone was looking for oil fields. And he's like, the geologist found a lot of oil fields. But the truth is now and the future is going to be engineering. Mm-hmm. So I guess in my hard-headed ways, I said, okay, well, reservoir engineering is, is as close to geology without being a geologist as you can get. Sure. And that's kind of what I went down, was into the reservoir engineering side and primarily following my father's advice, which was, there's so much oil left in the ground, go try to figure out how to get it out. And a lot of life kind of fell into place and opportunities kind of manifested themselves. And for me, it was, you know, with my father's advice, I transferred, came to Colorado School of Mines, did petroleum engineering, the opportunity with Exxon opened up and I just got lucky. They put me on probably the highest profile projects at the time for Exxon, which was the Kazamba projects in Angola. Wow. And it was enhanced oil recovery. It was improved oil recovery. It was billion dollar projects. Like you like our best well. This is this is what kind of made me crazy to think, you know, look in hindsight, the best well that we were producing in these offshore Angola assets was 40,000 barrels a day. God. And, That's insane. And before that, I worked with Williams, but it was all gas. It was tight gas sands up in the Piance Basin. So I had a decent feel for gas, but I didn't really have a normal feel for oil. And so that was my real introduction to oil projects. And I remember thinking of a, a well that did one or 2,000 barrels a day as being a horrible well. I was like, how do you make money off that? Yeah. Right? And now, you know, fast forward a few years, we're dealing with that mature assets. You know, oftentimes these are stripper fields or stripper wells. Yeah. And, you know, the days of 40,000 barrels a day are, are you know. <laughs> now, having said that, in the U.S., those days are gone. But, you know, right now we're working heavily into Kuwait and other parts of the Middle East. And mm. the truth is those guys have those big wells also. And wow. So, but I guess going back to the original question, which was, how did I get into EUR? Exxon opened up the door to EUR really just by the luck of the draw. They put sure. me on top projects. So I worked offshore Angola and then I worked offshore Russia and Sakhalin. The problem with Exxon, and this is not a diss on anyone from Houston, but I just didn't want to live in Houston. Sure. I missed the mountains, right? My childhood was in Argentina in the Andes Mountains. Oh, cool. As well as here in Colorado. And so, you know, my wife's from the Amazon. And so we just want to have more of an outdoor life. And we wanted the mountains. And so we mm-hmm. came back to Colorado. In my mind, I, I was worried I'd give up that life of international travel, big dollar projects, you know, technical projects. And I originally came back to Colorado to do a PhD in economics oh, at School wow. of Mines. And that's kind of where I met Surtec because we're across the street from School of Mines. And for some reason, I came across it, it was from a UK headhunter. They hmm. were looking for a reservoir engineer across the street from me. <laughs> no so, way. So, so someone from the UK reached out to me and I was like, I'm just going to walk across the street yeah. and drop my resume off. And lo and behold, you know, they wanted someone with twice my experience. And the Exxon card really kind of worked in my favor on that one. And very cool. Got the job. That's been, it's been almost 10 years, which is hard to believe. No kidding. Interesting. So for the listeners out there who may not be familiar with the term EOR, if they've heard of it, they may not understand it. How would you describe it high level, what EOR, aka enhanced oil recovery is? Yeah. So in the world of reservoir engineering, right, there's two terms. 
IOR and EUR. So you have improved oil recovery and enhanced oil recovery. Mm-hmm. And these are bickering points of most technical people, you know, depending on who you talk to, you know, whoever their mentor was, you know, brainwash <laughs> them one way or the other. But <laughs> yeah. at the end of the day, they're both very similar. And what it really gets down to is, you know, primary and secondary recovery is using pretty much the natural elements or the natural products that are available in the reservoir to produce oil, right? So you can re-inject water as, you know, water injection. Mm-hmm. You can inject hydrocarbon gas if it's what you, the gas that you produce. What EUR really focuses on is doing something different into the reservoir. So introducing a new phase, a new agent, a new something mm-hmm. in order to try to improve the recovery mechanisms and or the recovery factors or the recovery efficiencies. So that gets into thermal, so you can add heat. Heat can therefore improve recovery. So we have in-situ combustion, we have steam. You also have gas, so you could introduce CO2. You could introduce nitrogen. You could introduce flue gas, which is some combination thereof, or you Mm -hmm. could do ethane or some other form of hydrocarbon gas. That's a way of improving recovery. Or you could inject water and water with different kind of compositions. So that water could be low sal, so low salinity water. That's a hot topic in EUR right now. Okay. Or what you could do is you could add chemical agents to that water. Right. And that could be an alkali, a surfactant, or a polymer. And so that's kind of what the focus of EUR is, is introducing something new into the reservoir mm-hmm. to try to enhance the recovery. Gotcha. So do you guys do a lot of that testing here in your laboratory? Is yeah. that kind of what that's for? Describe your lab. Exactly. So our laboratory, you know, we've been here in Golden for about 40 years, which is... Like well, since 1978, 1978 right? is when Surtec was founded. Geez. So you and obviously didn't start back then. Nope, I didn't start. I was <laughs> I was lucky to work with the founder whose name was Harry Circalo. So gotcha. I had lunch with him today. He's retired now about, you know, about three years ago, mid 80s retired. Yeah. And so he's, you know, now in the upper 80s. He's someone who was one of the pioneers for enhanced oil recovery. So he cool. was the, And what was his name again? Harry Circalo. Huh. Interesting. And so Circalo was then turned into Surtec. Gotcha. Right? But he was one of the Marathon. So back in the day, the major oil companies were the leaders for enhanced oil recovery. Marathon was one of the top. I'd put Exxon as well as Marathon on that group of the, the top two. Okay. And Marathon was had a research center in Littleton, Colorado. And that's kind of how Harry got to Colorado. And then they were trying to give him a promotion and move him, I think it was either to Ohio or Texas. And he said, you know what, after 25 years with Marathon, I'm going to try to go on my own and offer some of these EUR services to the industry. Cool. Okay. So backing up again, I I took you on a tangent (laughs) there, but some of the stuff you mentioned, different applications to enhance the oil recovery, you guys test that in your lab or what what does that look like? Our big thing for enhanced oil recovery is that you're looking for the reservoir oil, the reservoir water, the reservoir temperature, mm-hmm. the reservoir rock, and how those interact with whatever agent you're introducing. And so what we do is we have quite a few core holders. Mm. And so we have core flooding equipment and we can do live or dead core floods. So that's at pressure, uh, recombined gas or not. And what we do is we will test in core samples how the oil can be displaced from the core. Gotcha. And so you'll saturate the core so you have water and oil in it. You'll do water injection to kind of see what the water flood baseline would look like. And then you'll follow that up with different formulation or cocktails of chemicals. And the idea is to see which chemical agent is the most stable and which one gives you the best recovery and the best economics. And and for us, one of the key things is economics. Mm. And that can be also evaluated with gas. So we can look at CO2 and see at what point do you have miscibility? So at what point does the gas kind of go into the oil and therefore 
miscibility has, by definition, an interfacial tension of zero. Okay. And in theory, if, if you look at the rel perms of a zero IFT system, you can get 100% displacement. Now, heterogeneity and other kind of geologic factors you know, take their toll on the reservoir, so you don't get 100% recovery, but you might be able to get an, an additional 10% right. or 20% of the oil. Gotcha. How would you describe the evolution of EOR, say, over the past decade or even since the downturn? I mean, is there a lot of demand for coming up with new technology or just a way to get more oil out of the ground so you don't have to drill it, you know, as many wells? Yeah. So the two big things about EUR in the past decade, there's two key factors or two key considerations. One of them is the unconventionals, mm-hmm. right? Ten years ago, we were just drill, baby, drill. Yeah. And everyone was fracking. Life was great. The Wall Street money was flowing, right? And, and everyone was just having a good time in the oil industry. Now, fast forward 10 years to today, the money's drying up. The wells are drilled. The sweet spots are heavily drilled up. There's mm. plenty of more areas to drill, but they don't have that uplift, that benefit that the original, like the sweet spots had. And the beauty or the nice part about it is the infrastructure is now there. The well bores are existing. And that kind of opens up for EUR. So people are recognizing that if we don't, do something with these well boards, we have to plug and abandon the wells. Mm-hmm. And also for unconventionals, we're getting 5 to 10% recovery. So think of all that oil target. And so this is one of the reasons why EUR is just now starting to be a, a hot topic for unconventionals. No kidding. And so we're working with the university, you know, Colorado School of Mines and, and other companies trying to figure out how to crack that nut. No one's figured that out yet for really? the unconventional. So any company that claims that they're the expert or that they've been able to figure out unconventionals, they might have scratched the surface, but the truth is there's such a target there and there's so much knowledge that needs to be invested into that mm-hmm. to figure out how to get it out. But So that's one area of the past decade is the unconventionals where no one talked about EUR until all, these, all of a sudden all these well bores were everywhere. Right. And they're saying, well, what can we do now? And there's a large oil target. Before you move on to the second one, I just had a quick question is how would you define unconventionals? Because I've asked that to a few different people and I have my own thought on it, but some people define it differently. So for your conversation, you know, just for all extensive purposes, what do you call unconventionals or how would you define unconventionals? Yeah. So the way I differentiate them is really with the oil. Okay. If the oil migrated into a trap, that's conventional. Okay. So if you have a carbonator or a plastic or, or sandstone, right? And you had a trap... You had just this uh, classic, you know, geology and petroleum engineering and the oil migrated into it, right? You had a petroleum system and you had heat and everything and the oil just rose. It got trapped in this little bubble mm-hmm. and some geologists wanted to drill the well if they found it. That to me is a conventional. Now, it might be a tight conventional like the Sussex in Wyoming or in other areas, mm-hmm. but it's still conventional. For me, what unconventionals are, are the source rock. It's the reservoir that the oil did not migrate into. It's the reservoir or the rock that the oil came out of. Gotcha. And so therefore, that to me is one of the key things that I I get a little frustrated as I talk to more people at unconventional EUR, is a lot of people don't differentiate those. They don't recognize that one of them has the ability to make oil, and the other one, the oil in place, is already determined. The OOIP is known. Right. And whereas if you look at the unconventionals, it's difficult to say what the OIP is because in the, the actual the, the rock is oil. It can create more oil. So yeah. depending on some of these laboratory studies you do, you might be able to find that you can produce more than 100% of the OIP. Wow. Because you've generated oil. You've figured a way to cook more oil out of it. Wow. And so it gets really tricky as I think of it with the lenses of EUR. Right. right? And so I, I know that some people talk about, well, if it flows on its own, 
it's conventional. If it doesn't flow and you got to frack it, that's unconventional. But yeah, I think for the most people that I've talked to, that's how they would describe it. But yeah. again, that's why I wanted to ask yeah, because it, it's interesting. We're all a little bit different, but yeah. for me, it's really, did the oil migrate in or did it not? Fair enough. <laughs> and, okay. and, and that's how I would talk to people for, in terms of enhanced oil recovery. Gotcha. All right. So we talked a little bit about sort of the evolution on one side, but what about the other side, which yeah, so, is obviously be on the... So the other one is on the conventional side, right? right. So what, what most people fail to recognize is that the unconventionals is really a United States thing. And the reason it's the United States thing is because we have so many drilling rigs and we have such kind of... It's not a perfect market, but we do have competition. Mm-hmm. And so what drillers can do is they can bring their costs down. Right. And by bringing their costs down, it starts making certain types of developments economic. In the international world, they don't have the number of drilling rigs. They don't have the economic environments that can really allow a driller to bring their costs as low as the United States has. And so unconventionals, besides the Vaca Muerte in Argentina, you really haven't seen it taken off anywhere, hmm. even though there's source rocks everywhere. Yeah. Right. And so we all know where the source rocks are. Those were all discovered you know, decades ago, but we haven't been able to tap into that. And so that to me opens up the next side of EUR, which is everywhere else in the world. <laughs> gotcha. And so you got the US with the unconventionals, but everywhere else on earth, they're stuck with their maturing, aging, conventional assets. And what they're recognizing is that it's a time to do something with it, right? We've seen Indonesia pop in and out of OPEC, right? And there's a time where they weren't exporting and so they got kicked out. <laughs> yeah. And they had to start exporting again. They got reinvited. But in a lot of these oil nations, they need to invest into some form of enhancement to the reservoir, EUR, in order to get their recoveries up. And so one of the areas that we've, in the past decade, and so going back to the original question is like, what have we seen the past decade is that we've seen the Middle East talk about EUR. Okay. And that is the dream scenario for someone in EUR, because what the Middle East is, you know, you have the rich Gulf nations, yeah. and these guys and gals are in a whole different world that anyone else, they're extremely conservative with their money. Mm-hmm. They save it up. They are very, you know, their hope is to have their kids run the businesses, right? Sure. And so they're not they're not playing the American economics, which is just, you know, get all the money up today and you know, buy my kids cars and, you know, they don't have to work because I'll make all the money today. In the Middle East, they have a different mentality. Now, they still buy their kids cars and fancy cars and all that stuff. Yeah. But they want the asset to survive the next hundred years. They want the country you know, to really kind of benefit from the oil industry. And so yeah. they have this, it, what I would argue is perhaps a little bit different, maybe more mature view or outlook of the oil industry. And so they're starting to say, well, we want to look into EUR, but we're not looking at it for tomorrow. We're looking at it for 20 years from now. Wow. And they have the budget to actually justify and support that. And so one thing we're seeing in the world of EUR is everyone who thinks they have a foot in the door for the world of EUR are claiming that they can be the silver bullet, the magic solution for the Middle East. Oh. And so right now what we're seeing is everybody's jumping at the Middle East. They're jumping at Kuwait. They're jumping at Saudi Aramco, Adnoc, as well as PDO. And they're just, you know, saying, try me, try me, try me. And some of them have done a great job. Others haven't done such a great job. But as Surtech, we've been able to be one of those companies that got in. And so we've, you know, for about five years now, we've had a relationship with Kuwait Oil Company. Interesting. And that has really helped us during the downturn. I can imagine. Yeah. Actually, my father-in-law worked at Kuwait Oil Company for a number of years, sort of on the midstream, downstream side of things. And he's here back in the U.S. But yeah, you were talking a little bit about culture and stuff like that. And some of the stories he's told me just working overseas and sort of the mindset behind it sort of certainly aligns with, with what you're saying. 
Is there a, sort of a, a rise or a re-rise in conventionals here in the U.S. with regards to EOR? My honest opinion is not really. Yeah. You know, you got stuff in California, but what's happening in the United States is we become the regulatory agencies. There's definitely a culture shift, right? And so we're starting to turn more and more anti oil, mm-hmm. right? Which is totally fine. And so here's a little secret about me is my high school diploma, which I think has been revoked because I work in the oil industry, is, is from actually from Boulder High. <laughs> okay. So in Boulder, Colorado, right? One of yeah. the most liberal places on earth is where I actually went to high school. Wow. And if they knew, if, if anyone from Boulder hears me talking about being in the oil industry, you know, they'll probably like defriend me or, <laughs> you know, burn my house down tomorrow. Yeah. I won't say where I live in Colorado. Right. Yeah. You don't, have to, you don't have to divulge your address, <laughs> but it's good to know. But the the funny part is as the oil and gas has really kind of the conventionals, a lot of the, the focus has been kind of pushed away. What we are starting to see now is the environmentalists are starting to look at the oil and gas industry as potential solutions for carbon capture. Yeah. And that's one area that I've been involved in with Colorado School of Mines as well as CERTEC for the past, you know, it's been about three, four years now that we had the opportunity to present in Washington, D.C., one of the CCUS, so Carbon Capture Utilization Storage Conferences, the idea of using CO2 from corn ethanol plants as a source for CO2 to inject into the oil reservoirs to get more oil out of the ground. Mm. And one of the reasons why that's important is because the CO2 from a corn ethanol plant is grown from the CO2 from the atmosphere. And so if you think about every year when the, you know, a harvest comes and they grab the corn, grab a bushel of corn, they'll run that through the corn ethanol plant, you get about a half of it or you know 40% of it will be ethanol, corn ethanol, that then sold to California or other areas in the United States in the refineries that's mixed with our oil, with our gasoline. But then the other part of the, so the other like 30% of it turns into feedstock. And the other 30% is a very pure form of CO2 that is just emitted to the atmosphere. Okay. And nobody talks about it, which is the absolute crazy part. Yeah. So if you think about the, one of the main sources of CO2 in the oil and gas industry is the Labarge oil field, which is in Wyoming, operated by Exxon. And they are, you know, I'm not sure exactly what they're producing right now, but three, around 300, 400 million cubic feet of CO2 a day is what they're sourcing to all the oil fields from in Wyoming all the way hmm. up to the Bell Creek field, which is run by Denbury up in Montana. And that same volume of what Exxon is producing and selling is being emitted into the atmosphere by the corn ethanol plants in the whole state of Nebraska. Wow. And nobody cares. No one talks about it. And the reason is because it's biogenic. They view it as a natural process. In theory, I guess you could argue that they just recapture it and they regrow it. Right. So one of the things that we've been looking at, and we've written some technical papers on, and we've presented this, is how can you use that CO2 as a source for a lot of these old, mature, conventional assets in Nebraska and Colorado and the DJ Basin mm-hmm. to be able to make oil? Now, you can make oil. Now, here's where it gets really crazy. And this, this is kind of exciting part, and this is what our whole paper was based on, okay. was by injecting the CO2, rather than letting it be emitted to the atmosphere, yeah. you are eligible for some of the carbon credits from the state of California because the corn ethanol is sent to the refineries and then mixed with the with the gasoline there. Yeah. What they're doing is California right now is paying about $150 to $200 a metric ton for every metric ton of CO2 that you can capture and store. That is enough money in just carbon credits to actually pay for all the infrastructure for all CO2 projects for what we're talking about. These are billions of dollars. Wow. And it's absolutely mind-boggling to think that 
that opportunity is kind of, so we, we've been active in that for the past three years. We're still currently active in that. We're pushing that forward, but it's the money's there. Yeah. So this is an opportunity to make CO2 instead of a cost, like you have to buy it from Exxon for the, all the Wyoming projects. You can actually make money off. No kidding. And there's a lot of details, you know, a lot of devils in those details that I'm not talking about, but the opportunity is really there. It's valid. We're pursuing it right now. Wow, good um, for you guys. But that to me is, I hope that if we can pull this off, we can. I can go get my high school diploma back. <laughs> you know, and the people from Boulder will yeah, they, welcome me back in. Yeah, they'd roll out the red carpet and say, <laughs> come on in. But I guess the point I'm trying to make is, for the first time in years, the oil and gas industry has been able to talk to the environmentalists mm-hmm. and be able to recognize that, look, we know of subsurface traps where the oil and gas was originally stored for 100 million years. And if you guys can, if we can work together, we could utilize that to force CO2 in some of these you know, coal plants, corn ethanol plants, fertilizer plants, all of those plants have a relatively pure form of CO2. Mm. And you can just capture it, not have to worry about all these fancy technologies that are expensive. You just grab it from the outlet. Right. And just shove it into an oil field. Now, it requires some investment. It requires some, some understanding of the process, understanding on how to get these carbon credits. But there's also federal carbon credits. And those ones are the 45Q. Those are about $35 a metric ton. And those ones are very easy to get. Hmm. And so the government, and a lot of people, I guess this is one area that I think we could be better in the oil and gas industry is, is stop perhaps bickering so much about how horrible the regulatory environment is, right? And, mm-hmm. and how the politicians are trying to ruin us and destroy us and start recognizing, okay, well, how can we work with them to actually make money on some of the stuff? Yeah. Because at the end of the day, no one's advocating for polluting the world, right? Exactly. When I worked at Exxon, I remember, you know, the outside, you know, news, the media, I guess, would give you this idea that it was just these greedy, horrible guys, men just polluting the world and laughing about it in these conference rooms and like right and just I, like laughing all the way to the bank exactly <laughs> and, and, and here i am with like some of the most technical people on earth and these are fathers mothers you know friends yeah normal people doing everything they can to recycle these are some of the like that to me is the funny part yeah is that the people that worked at exxon or the people working for any of the majors or for any part of the oil and gas industry very few of them are advocating anything that's not environmentally friendly, mm-hmm. anything that's not safe, right? And now I can say this, but the sad reality is that if you look historically, the oil and gas industry has made some errors, right? We've, we've definitely done some some nasty things and have pulled funding from certain projects that we felt would, would hurt, our, hurt our bottom line, but that's the past. Yeah. You know, like today it's, it's a new time and I think we can actually work together right. for the first time. Maybe that's what I'm trying to promote. No, and that's good. And it sounds like certainly there's a little chatter and a little rumbling of that happening. And so what would you suggest for us as an industry to hopefully change the perception within oil and gas? Like, What would it take, do you think? What would it take? It's a miracle? No. <laughs> <laughs> it might be. But yeah. I mean, and I'm playing yeah. the long game. I'm not saying within the next year, because certainly this is something that, you know, we have a history, right? Yeah. So I guess let me just offend as many people as I can. Perfect. <laughs> One of the areas I find to be a limiting factor is the old guys. Yeah. There's an old school mindset on both parties. And I'm not talking political parties. I'm just talking about environmental industry, oil industry. Mm-hmm. And there's a mindset that we're different, that we're opposites, that we hate each other. Right, where right? our values are yeah, so our, different. Our values are so different. And that it manifests itself in the, in the politics of the United States. And the politics of the United States are so divisive right now. Mm-hmm. But if you actually look at it, you know, I hate saying this, but there's these old guys holding on to old biases. Yep. And one thing I'm kind of hoping the oil and gas industry can do is 
that the old men who can pass on the knowledge will yes. pass on the knowledge, which is be good, <laughs> you yeah. know, be environmentally friendly. And that's, that's everything I've ever learned in the oil and gas industry. Not one of my mentors ever said, oh, we should lie. We should do this. It's the other type of old guys that I mentioned at the beginning of the podcast. Mm-hmm. It's these guys trying to compete, right? Trying to get ahead. Yes. They're the ones who are trying to do that. So I guess my fantasy and way to get to the solution is if we can have the young engineers, right? Recognize that, look, there's a certain type of older engineer, or older person that we need to be listening to. And those guys are only doing what's best for the environment. They're only doing what's best for the country, for the industry. I think we can recognize and perhaps push aside some of these bickering that we get caught in for political gains, right? And mm-hmm. it's just, it's so frustrating to see how much on a tangent we go off, right? We just get lost looking at, you know, arguing about how the oil and gas industry are these horrible polluters and terrible people who want to take the world back to a hundred years and, you know, give everyone machine guns and kill everyone. And you're like, what are you talking about? That's nothing to do with us. Yeah. And I hope that the young people can kind of rise above that. And that's the young people on both parties. That's the environmentalist as well as the oil and gas and young people and say, look, we're the same. We want the exact same thing. Like Mm -hmm. I haven't lost my bolder values, right? Of course. And the place where I grew up in Argentina, which is Bariloche, is like the boulder of South America, <laughs> yeah. right? It's like as many hippies there as, as hippies in Boulder. And so deep inside, I think there are solutions. There are ways to work together. Mm-hmm. And if we can just kind of push aside some of the old school mentality, I, I think we can actually get there. Yeah. No, I love that outlook. I'm going to steal a question from another podcaster who's a lot more famous than myself. His name's Tim Ferriss. But in this kind of came up, but if you could have a, a billboard where millions and millions of people could see it, you know, driving every day, you know, if you could get a message out to both sides in a sentence or a billboard, what would it say? Wow, that's a tough question. We can circle back to it. I don't want to have you sit there and again scratch yeah, your head too. A- a- ask me at the end. Okay. So, so let me think of it. Yeah, as we speak. yeah, no problem. It's just like I said, it's a question <laughs> that he always asks his audience. And it's basically saying, you know, if, if you had a billboard that every person, you know, on earth would drive by every day, what would it say? And so there's definitely some unique answers. But yeah, give it some thought. And if not, you know, that's totally fine. But I know I kind of hit you with a blind one there. What would you say, what does the future of EOR look like? And does the answer take away a lot of the drilling? Because ultimately, to me, if you can get more out of a single well, the ultimate rig count would slowly start to drop. Or what does that look like, do you think? Yeah, so I'd even say the environmentally friendly thing to do is EUR. Yeah. Because if you think about it, it's, it's the whole concept of like, you know, to be better at the way you use the stuff you got. Yeah. <laughs> right? It's, you know, why drill new wells and kind of put a, another footprint somewhere when you've already got footprints established? Right. And there's plenty of oil there. That's the interesting part is that there's a lot of oil and there's a lot of target oil there. And there's ways to get it out economically. And I think that's one area that a lot of EUR people have failed to even discuss is talk about economics. Okay. And you see some of the stuff that academia publishes and some ideas where it's like, okay, well, if you spend $100 per barrel, you can then get a barrel of oil out and sell it for $50. And you say that makes zero economic sense. That's not practical. Yeah. And so as far as the future of EUR, I'd say it has to be able to recognize that everything has to be economic. It has to be practical. It can be environmentally friendly. And at the end of the day, drilling will always be part of it because we're always going to have to use drilling, but we might not have to be drilling at the rate that we've been doing the past 10 years. Mm -hmm. And drilling is, it's great, but for every well you drill, you've got to plug. And the problem is we have such a short-term mentality or, or, or mindset or, or sight in the United States that no one ever thinks about plugging and banning a well. And so what they do is they'll drill a well, 
and they'll make the money. And then what they do is they'll try to sell the asset to someone smaller. They'll find a small guy who has less money or less knowledge or just more naive. Mm. And say, okay, here you go. You take it. And next thing they know, they've got orphan wells. Yeah. Right? And so you got this plethora of wells. And EUR is focusing on the end of life of the oil industry. Yeah. And if all these people who are environmentalists, futurists about how solar is going to take over, it's like, well, to be honest, you got to put the lid on top of the oil industry correctly. Now, my guess is going to take 200 years to properly close out the oil industry. But you have to start investing and being you know, smart in the way that you, you take advantage or, or that you close out in the life of the oil industry. Right. And maybe that would come sooner if, isn't it Elizabeth Warren who wants to basically stop fracking immediately if she becomes president? Have you heard that? Yeah, no, yeah, I, I've definitely <laughs> heard that. And, and, and this, is, this is the example of the older generations not recognizing that they're so divisive that they can't even think of a happy solution. Right. Like, why can't you say something along the lines of, you know, let's become more efficient the way we do it. Why don't we do clean drilling? Like, there's plenty of companies out there with a, an amazing track record. Right. Right. And there's ways to do that. And I still think that we can work together. Like, there's environmentally friendly ways of doing, of coexisting. For sure. And I think, yeah, I think we all hope and dream of the day when a new magical clean energy takes over the world and you know, these <laughs> angels can then like ride their backs and, and just daydream about how horrible the past was. But yeah. like, let's work together until we get there because the way we're going is we're so divisive that it's starting to get scary. Yeah. And, no, and that's I the last you. thing you want us to see where the U.S. goes when you've got the oil industry who hate the, the environmentalists, the environmentalists hate the oil industry, but it's all of these old people. Yeah. You say, like, let it go, man. Yeah. Well, it'll be interesting to see, like, when we're considered the quote unquote old people, when we're in our 50s and 60s, hopefully the, the generations, you know, that come after us can help make that shift and, and we can help, you know, guide it. And yeah, uh, no, it, it's exactly. certainly exciting to see it. I'm totally with you on that. Right now, what excites you the most about EOR sitting here today with regards to, is there anything sort of special and exciting that you're dealing with currently like yeah, on so, a macro level? So as I mentioned, we're involved with the carbon capture utilization storage aspect of CO2 EOR. And so that's something that definitely excites me. Cool. That to me is if, if we can pull off what we're trying to pull off right now, we will capture more CO2 than anybody else. Very cool. Like just overnight. Yeah. And I'd just love to be in, a, in some environmentalist conference, right? Nice. And like, you know, whip out my old Letterman jacket from Boulder High. Yeah. And, uh, <laughs> and say, hey, you know, yeah. I'm, I'm, not a, I'm not a bad guy. <laughs> yeah. Good for you, man. So, so that, that's one thing that excites me. The other thing that kind of more perhaps on a selfish way excites me is that there's no competition. It's the weirdest thing. Yeah. It's the weirdest thing. Like, I'm shocked to see the opportunities that I've had to go travel around the world, consult with national oil companies. I haven't gotten invited to go, after I left Exxon, I never thought I'd go back to Exxon. I actually had the opportunity to go back to Exxon. No kidding. And talk to them. And it just blew my mind to think that there's such few people in the world that understand EUR that I've been able to have these opportunities to meet these people. Is that a function of commodity prices because everyone wants to throw money at what's sexy and what's sexy is drill and frack? Or like, why is that? Yeah, so I would argue it's two parts. One of them is the distraction of what is sexy, right? Because yeah. I remember 10 years ago, you know, the sexy thing was unconventional. You know, it was the... So 10 years ago, we had just done the Marcellus Shale, right? Uh, everyone's being like, horizontal frack, you know, we've... You know, we've got 100 years of supply for gas. Gas prices will never fluctuate. They used to in the United States. You know, life's great. Everyone's so great. And then some some genius is like, hey, why don't you try that same technology for oil wells? And they did a horizontal multi-stage fracking. And they're like, yeah, and everyone's going crazy, right? And like, mm -hmm. that's sexy. 
no one ever thought once about you are in that time in the United States. They're like, you're the thing of the past. Yeah. So that's one area is definitely where the money goes is what appears to be sexy. The other side of it is what happened with the downturn in 86. Yeah. And so if you think about before this big downturn, right, I talked earlier about it because of there's no middle-aged people. <laughs> you have young and then old. Yeah. You, know, you got 20, like 15 years. There's like no one from really 40 to 45-year-olds to 60 almost. Sure. You know, 55, 60. If you're one of those people in the oil and gas industry, you're rare. Yeah. Because most people are now in their 60s plus, and a lot of people are just dying out. Like, just that's just the way life goes. But what created that shortage of people in that age group also pretty much killed off EUR. Because EUR was really sexy. It was really big. The DOE threw a lot of funds in it in the 60s and 70s. There was a lot of DOE-funded projects for thermal EUR, for chemical EUR, for gas EUR. If you think about the gas EUR, the United States is the only place with a CO2 infrastructure that can actually make money off of CO2. Hmm. That was all funded by windfall tax credits or windfall tax incentives during the 70s and 80s. Hmm. That built a billion-dollar infrastructure in Texas, in Wyoming, in Louisiana. And because there's only really three main sources or areas that you see CO2 completely funded in the past. And now that we have that infrastructure, we have CO2 projects, but you can't get any any other ones. Right. And so back in the day, EUR was sexy. It was like the sexy thing, like being smart was sexy, right? Yeah. And being able to understand and, and explain technical concepts. Everyone was excited by that. But when oil prices crashed in 86, right, in the mid-80s, the first thing that happened was all the money got pulled back, right? So everyone said oil prices are like, you know, they're peanuts. And so therefore, there's not enough money to invest for EUR because oil's so cheap. The geologists went crazy. They found all this oil and the world's going to survive for the next 20 years on like $1 a gallon. Right? <laughs> Everyone yeah. buy a big SUV and we're going to drive around and you know just talk about how great life is. But during that downturn, very few people and companies were investing in EUR. And the real sad reality is that some consulting management company convinced Marathon... <laughs> A lot of these major oil companies who are the leaders of EUR, that their research centers were cost centers. Mm. And they said, this is a cost drain. This is something that is not helping your cash flow. Right. So you need to get rid of it. And so what we saw in the late 80s all the way to 2000, 2001, I think is when Marathon finally closed theirs. But even before that, they had already drastically reduced what they were producing as far as research. The oil and gas industry gave up research. They handed it to the academic world. Uh, okay. right? and, so, and this is where you see a lot of these top-notch universities doing research, but their objective isn't to make more oil. It's not about being practical, right? Their whole research objectives, and I say this partly being in academia, mm-hmm. is that a lot of these guys just want tenured positions. Yeah. And to get tenured, you have to write a lot of papers. You have to graduate a lot of students. And if you make incremental oil, who cares? Right. And so there's a major disconnect in that in those 20 years, what, we, what happened was the majors took a major step back in terms of EUR. They just gave up on it. The age group got just, no one got hired. We lost the gap or the bridge between the old guys who knew their stuff and the young guys who knew nothing, right? And then finally, we pretty much handed off to the academic world to run free with EUR knowledge and research. And one of the things that I've learned that drives me crazy is if you look at the universities that, like the amount of students they pop out with an EUR kind of stamp of approval on their master's or their PhD dissertation, if they could produce just one barrel of incremental oil, this world would be like, like you'd say, well, well done, academia. You did your job. But we get zero from academia. 
Hmm. There's zero incremental oil coming from the academic world. So for some reason, the oil and gas industry looks at academia for the solution when their agenda is never to make incremental oil. Right. It's to, it's to spit out you know technical papers as well as... And so this is when what frustrates me and maybe the opposite of gets me excited is to read some of the projects that the academic institutes offer to operators, right? You see national oil companies who get in bed with at the university and the university says, okay, you got to implement this formulation. And I kid you not, you look at these technical papers and what was actually recommended, it costs a hundred dollars of just chemicals to produce one barrel of oil that you can sell for $50. Yeah, like that's not practical, and so I'm kind of, kind of excited because in this next IOR conference, the UR conference in Tulsa this year and next year in 2020, we have a technical paper that we're going to be talking about that. Oh, great! And so pretty much emphasizing that you have to be practical, you have to make money on this stuff, right? But it's one of those frustrations, right? That, that you look and I feel comfortable saying these things because I am in academia. Yep, and I see it, I see it firsthand, and now I respect and I really appreciate the guys I've been able to work with. And I think they're just absolutely outstanding individuals who've taught me a lot of this stuff. And they're the, also critical on academia's inability to produce incremental oils from EUR. Mm-hmm. But it requires the oil industry to wake up one day and say, this isn't like their agenda is different. Objectives are different. Right. Huh. How do you change that? It's a good question. Well, to be honest, there's only one way to convince the oil and gas industry. The oil and gas industry is a lot of people are scared to lead. Right. Right. And so when you see someone do a breakthrough, everybody jumps on that bandwagon, right? Like when the first horizontal well with multi-stage fracks occurred and they got those IPs, everybody else was like, I want that too. Mm-hmm. And they just kind of went down that bandwagon. With EUR, you have to show that it's economic. You have to show that it can be done. Yeah. And you have to show people that they can make money. And like, for example, in Canada, so there's two parts of the world that actually EUR has really kicked off. One's in Canada. Yeah. And the other one is in China. I would argue that Certec was fundamental. So Certec did the first polymer pilot project for Daqing, and which is one of these oil provinces. We also did their first chemical ASP f- formulation pilot. Oh, wow. And that's in the 80s and the 90s. Daqing right now is producing about a million barrels of oil. 200,000 barrels of oil is accredited to chemical EUR. Wow. So that's one of the areas that you look at the world and you say, yep, that's working. Now, Chinese economics are a little bit different than Western economics. So as long as they're employing people, they're happy. And so... They might not pass all the yardsticks of the United States or in Canada, but in Canada, if you look at one of the companies that is really the leader that take my hat off and that we've been able to work with like from the get-go was Husky. Yeah. So Husky is viewed as one of the most technical companies and they're just phenomenal. And we were able to work with them. So when they bought the company Renaissance, there's a project named Etzcom. And so we were able to work with them in the actual pilot or the whole that was a, a straight into full field a small full field about 22 million barrel pour volume straight into a project and they actually made money on it and then you know what husky did they did it again they yeah. went to warner they made money on it yeah <laughs> what they do after that they went to the next project and so you know we've had the opportunity to watch husky i think they've got about seven or eight chemical eur implementations that we've been able to work with wow. and just going stepping one above the other one and what you've recognized was CNRL, Crescent Point, you know, all these other companies, these Canadian companies are looking at Husky and being like, hey, if they can do it, I can do it too. Sure. So it's just, you have to show that EUR can be done. And to me, that's what's lacking in the United States. Gotcha. In the United States, you need someone to stand up and put the CO2 in the ground. That's not in one of those infrastructure areas, right? <laughs> you need someone to go do a chemical flood and show that, look, I made 50% rate of returns. Yeah. And you do that 
and people will start following because there's so many candidate fields out there. In the 80s, people walked away. Right. And they just, first there was no money and then they were distracted by the unconventionals. But the opportunity is still there. Yeah. Interesting. Who would you say is a leader in the lower 48 with regards to EOR? Well, are so, there any? Yeah. So you have to look at what type of EOR. So one, okay. of the, one of my frustrations with EOR, and this is where I'm trying to really push Surtech and expand, is to let the world know that we are more than just a chemical EOR company, that we are involved in gas EOR. We have equipment here that we can measure, MMP, and do a lot of the laboratory studies that you would do with, with gas EOR. We're also currently involved in a thermal project and in situ combustion in Wyoming that we should start injecting here in the next couple months. And so I view it as you have to probably be able to do EUR. You can't be a one trick pony. Yeah. And a lot of EUR, you have one trick ponies. And so companies that have become experts in one type of EUR. And for some of those companies, they do a great job. Like if you, Kinder Morgan, or if you look at like Denberry, right? These are companies that focus on CO2 and they've been able to succeed doing so. And so your hat goes off to them and say, hey, good job, guys. But when you talk to them about chemical, they're like, oh, we're not interested in that one. You look at Chevron and a lot of companies over in California where they're doing the steam floods, right? And you say, hey, these guys know their stuff. They're experts at steam flood. Whereas if you were in the world of chemical EUR, I'd really put Husky, you know, and CMPC in China. Those are the two operators who have clearly been able to demonstrate time and time again that they can actually make money doing this. Gotcha. And But in the lower 48, I don't think there's any champion for, for chemical. Huh. I can only think of a handful of projects that are currently being implemented right now. What I would push is to really be able to do EUR, you need reservoir engineers who understand all forms of EUR. Because oftentimes people have either inherited or they have the cards that were dealt to them. Mm-hmm. And so they look at the field and if they go talk to a company that only does chemical, well, what are they going to recommend? Well, they're going to recommend chemical. And then there's, there's companies in particular that we've recognized that they have recommended projects that should have never been implemented in the field. You know, like fractured reservoirs. You know, there's projects right now that are carb, fractured carbonates that should not be candidates for EUR, for an aqueous form of EUR. Mm. And yet some expert in chemical EUR have said, no, you should do that. <laughs> And what do you find out when you start doing that is that a fractured reservoir, you don't flood the matrix, you're flooding the, the fractures. Yeah. It's, it's frustrating as an EUR person to look at that and say, you're hurting the industry. So every time someone tries to fit a square peg in a round hole, yeah. it hurts all of us. Yeah. And it takes the, in- the whole EUR world a couple steps back. And there's numerous examples I can think of. And this is from my people I've worked with. And this has been a reoccurring issue. Yeah. Is he the one trick pony trying to do their one trick everywhere they go? No kidding. Wow. Well, it's, it certainly sounds like we're at the tip of the iceberg here with regards to EOR. And, and my hat's off to you guys, kind of, you know, just being involved and trying to just improve what's already there and, and leading the way in a number of different facets. So, you know, I want to respect your time. I know we're getting close to an hour here, but I got a couple of questions before we close out more on just sort of a personal side of things. But I mean, being a CEO, obviously, you've got your hands full. You're busy, but do you have any daily habits or routines that sort of keep you focused and motivated or things that you do to unplug to kind of keep you just grounded and motivated to grind every single day? Yeah. So daily routine. So my wife is is pretty big into fitness. Okay. And so we kind of, we have the opportunity to work out together. Good. And so I'm obviously chubbier than what I want to be, but <laughs> <laughs> you got to play the long game. You got to play the long game. Yeah. But to be honest, working out, running, do trail runs, that to me keeps me kind of stress-free or Mm -hmm. reduce stress. The other thing I would say is I'm really trying to learn the skill set of trusting the people you work with. Ah. And I've been really fortunate to have 
fabulous mentors. The guys I work at with Surtech. And so right now the president of Surtech is Malcolm Pitts, who's been with Surtech for 40 years, and Con Wyatt's the vice president. And he's been with Surtech for 40 years. And in, you know, in the past, before I started, it was Harry, Sir Kalo, Con, and Malcolm. Con and Malcolm are still at Surtech. And they've been phenomenal mentors who've been able to kind of support me and help me. So it's not just a, here you go. You know, you have a support system. Mm-hmm. And so one of my, I'd say, daily routines is to make sure that I'm taking advantage of the support system, making sure that I've got mentors and guys who've got the gray hairs who yep. can definitely push me in the right direction. Cool. And so I'll throw Dr. Hassan Kazemi, who's also at Colorado School of Mines, a great friend of mine, a fabulous mentor. He also worked at Marathon with Harry. And so it's this unique opportunity to have a lot of people with a lot of experience just handing knowledge over to me. Yeah. And people who I can have a, perhaps a daily or a weekly routine to just talk with them. Yeah. And say, hey, I recognize that I'm young. I recognize I really don't have a clue what I'm doing. <laughs> <laughs> but if they can support me, we can actually do a better job. And so that, that's, that's one of the routines I would throw out there. Besides just, you know, play as much as I can with my kids. Yeah. So How old are your kids? So I've got a two, a four, a 12, and a 13. Four kids? Four kids. <laughs> and so my wife and I, you know, we've been married for 15 years now. Awesome. And Good for you guys. Uh, it's interesting. This is definitely a shift in our family world, right? The time requirement that's coming out of Surtec right now. And so I'm really fortunate with my wife. She homeschools our kids. Wow. And not because like we're scared of anything. It's because she just really enjoys teaching our kids and she enjoys spending time with them. And, Good for her. And our kids are in competitive dancing. So our, our older two daughters, they're in competitive dancing. Nice. This at least allows them to compete at a high level. Yeah while still having family time. And so the really nice thing about homeschooling is I can take them on business trips sometimes. Yeah. And so there's you know, a lot of benefit to that. And as long as it's done right and, and everyone's aware of, you know, there's whether you call it risk or, you know, things you need to be aware of, certainly it can work. And it sounds like you guys have, you know, for the most part have figured it out and it, it makes the most sense for you and your family. So yeah, that's great. No, and I would throw out there, and this is one thing, I, the advice I give to people like newlyweds, right? When you go to weddings, they're like, hey, give advice or, you know. Yeah, yeah. My advice is I don't think anyone has a clue what they're doing. Oh, for especially sure. in family and relationship. That's so true. And man. the first thing I would advise people is like, try to figure out something for yourself, something that works for you guys. And so my wife and I, we talk a lot. And the truth is, it's a look, we're adults, you know, let's blaze through our own path and figure this out together. And at least at the end of the day, we can look back and say, well, that was our decision. That was our choice. For sure. And so we have, you know, family values that we cherish and we want to keep and, and pass on to our kids. But, you know, conventional like education or, you know, like the schooling environment, we're not worried or scared of it. I just think my wife and I can do a better job. Yeah. Hey, and, and good for you guys. So you that, that helps us out. Yeah. No, you own it. And, and it sounds like you guys are doing the right things. Like I said, just doing what you think makes most sense for you and your family. Because like you said, you know, there's books and, and all sorts of blogs and everything on like how to's with regards to parents or, you know, raising kids. And at the end of the day, you just have to do what makes most sense for you and your spouse and just figure it out, you know, the way you go. And, you know, I kind of give my wife, you know, shit every once in a while because she, she always tries to read so many books and she wants affirmation from something or someone to, so she knows, yeah, okay, what I'm doing is right. And it's like, we'll realize whether it's right or wrong. And so, but no, my hat goes off to you guys and, you know, certainly appreciate the conversation we've had. This has been good. A lot of great nuggets coming out of it. So just a couple more things before we wrap up. I just want to take a few moments to tell everyone about our upcoming events. Hey everybody, Alex here with the events on deck for February. 
We do not have any OGGN happy hours in February, but we do have an exciting event coming up in Pittsburgh. This will be our first happy hour there in March, and it will be taking place on March 25th. The location is to be determined, so be sure to follow us on Facebook, LinkedIn, or Twitter to keep up with uh, those announcements and to purchase tickets. The Houston API Luncheon will be on February 11th. This will be a networking event with top oil and gas business leaders, and they promise that you'll be learning something really cool. So check it out and sign up for that event. The Wildcatters Ball will be on February 7th in Houston. This ball is the primary oil and natural gas industry fundraising event for the IPAA Educational Foundation. Proceeds go toward funding the foundation's energy education programs. The API Energy Houston Three Gun Chapter will be on March 20th in Houston. This event fills up really quickly, so make sure to get your team entered. The best way to do so is to fax or email the form with at least a captain's name as soon as possible. If you need to wait for a check, just notate that on the bottom of the form and send it on. We will be sending Mark LaCour and Patrick Pister to Scotland, to Aberdeen, Scotland, on March 5th for DokaruCon, which is the first event of its kind. It is a conference for creating high impact sales in energy. And Mark and Patrick will be hosting a panel and recording a live podcast. If you're interested in attending this event, visit dokarucon.dokaru.com. And that is D-O-Q-A-R-U-C-O-N. That's all for this month. Thanks for tuning in and be sure to check again next month for more updates on OGGN events. All right. Thank you. And anyone out there in the Houston area interested in playing oilfield hockey, come join the Hack and Whack crew for some old timer hockey. We do it every two weeks at Memorial City Mall Ice Rink. Hit me up on LinkedIn for more details. And if you're looking to get in shape for over the winter, visit KTX Fit in Katy, Texas and get a free trial by telling one of the coaches that I sent you. Elio, thanks so much for joining me today. This has been a fantastic conversation. Thank Um, you, Justin. Yeah, I'm excited to see what, you know, the future holds for Surtech and especially the world of EOR. So anytime I come back up to Colorado, I might bug you and grab lunch because, you know, if we can continue this, you know, going forward and anything I can share to the world of oil and gas, I certainly want to do so. But yeah, so again, go ahead if, if you had something you wanted to mention with regards to the billboard. Okay, so with the billboard, what I would do is I would have a the environmentalist as well as the oil industry and pretty much just one line saying we all want the same thing. Boom. I like that. I'm going to tag that into the LinkedIn <laughs> post whenever we post this. So that's great. I like that. So what's the best way for folks out there if they want to get to know more about whether it's EOR or get to know more about Surtech and what you guys are doing? Is there any good resources for that? Yeah. So, you know, LinkedIn, I'm not as good as posting things as I should be, but I do accept and I do respond to personal messages on LinkedIn. So LinkedIn is okay. always a good way to find me. Okay. The other one is, you know, Send an email to Surtech. You can reach out to Surtech. Just you know, Google Surtech. Yeah. But I'm also I've got my contact information at Colorado School of Mines and the Petroleum Engineering Department faculty. Very cool. And so you know, so you guys can send me emails. You can send me messages. You know, I think I'm young enough that I'm pretty good with social media. Yeah. Okay. And so I'm happy to use it and <laughs> use technology. Good. Just don't call me. Yeah. You know, <laughs> don't do the old school phone call. Right. I, yeah. That's, that's the one thing I don't want to see. <laughs> that's funny. We'll make sure we put the link in the show notes for that stuff. And yeah, that's a wrap, everyone. Thanks for listening. And always remember when the density's up and the gas is down, open the choke. Let's go to town. Thanks, everybody. 
Tune in next week for another captivating episode of Tendeka's Oil & Gas Onshore Podcast, a production of the Oil & Gas Global Network. Learn more at oilandgasglobalnetwork.com. Network.com.